Welcome, everyone. How's everyone doing tonight? Good. Um, we're so excited to be here uh, celebrating South Asian Trailblazers' first ever live podcast in Boston. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Simi Shaw. I am the founder and host of South Asian Trailblazers, and we are a podcast as well as a broader media platform and community dedicated to elevating the stories of leading South Asians as well as convening them. And I started this platform almost three years ago, exactly to the date, because I had recently graduated from college and was looking for a way to maintain the connection I'd had to my culture my whole life. And as I was looking around in this new professional chapter of my life, I kept seeing South Asians breaking barriers and making their mark in every possible industry and space I could think of. And I thought, how exciting would it be if we had a space where we could share in their stories in a way that could inform and inspire our own journeys? And so that was the genesis of South Asian Trailblazers. And I'm proud to say that today we are celebrating three years, six seasons, and over 60 stories told. Today marks an especially momentous occasion because I have the privilege of kicking off season seven with two of the most extraordinary leaders I know. And honestly, I don't really think they needed introduction, but I'm gonna give you one anyway. Because if you've ever listened to our podcast, you'll know that we're all about diving deep into the journeys of trailblazing South Asians. And so I want to help set the stage before we start. Dr. Shrishti Gupta is a physician leader whose career spans the private, public, and nonprofit sectors. Today, Shrishti dedicates her time to board service, serving on the boards of Idorsia Pharmaceuticals, the Norskin Foundation, and the Backpack Foundation. She also supports STEAM experiences and scholarships for underserved students and mentors founders in health and education. Previously, Shrishti spent nearly two decades at McKinsey and Company. She was a senior expert in the global health practice and eventually served as global director for McKinsey alumni and strategy, director of global programs and director of diversity and inclusion. Throughout her career, she has worked as a physician and public health consultant in diverse market contexts from India to Botswana. She holds a BA, MA, MPP, and MD from Harvard University, because that isn't enough degrees, and a Master of Philosophy from the University of Cambridge. Now for our next guest. Dr. Vas Narasimhan is the CEO of Novartis. Who could have guessed? Since becoming in C CEO in 2018, Voss has led a strategic and cultural transformation to build a fully focused medicines company. Since first joining the company in 2005, Voss has held a range of leadership roles, including global head of development for Novartis vaccines, global head of drug development, and chief medical officer. He is an elected member of the National Academy of Medicine in the US, and in 2023, he became chair of the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America. He holds a BS from the University of Chicago and an MD and MPP from Harvard University. 
Please join me in welcoming Dr. Vas Narasimhan and Dr. Shrishti Gupta Narasimhan. Thank you guys so much for being here today. Thank, Thank you, you so much for having us. For How does it feel being back in your old stomping grounds? I, I do a lot of town halls from here. So. <laughs> <laughs> this is familiar territory it's for you. Not so much for me, and I know a lot of people have been curious about what is, who is the woman behind Boss, and I'm just super excited to meet everybody today. Yeah. Absolutely, well we're excited <laughs> to have you. Now, both of you have individually built extraordinary careers, and I want to go back to the very beginning. Can each of you talk about your respective upbringings as first-generation South Asian Americans and what initially piqued your interest in medicine and global health? And I know, Shristi, in your case, your father was a gastroenterologist. Did he inspire that early propensity for medicine? So um, my parents moved to the U.S. from India in 1971. They landed in Brooklyn, New York, where I was born. Um, my dad was a medical graduate from India, and uh, they were very excited to have people come from with medical degrees to the U.S. at that point in time. Um, I grew up in Brooklyn and then moved eventually to Long Island uh, for school. And Long Island, I, there weren't a lot of Indian kids in my, in, in my school at the time, not a lot of South Asian kids. Uh, and so I kind of had this life like a lot of us did, where the weekends were very, you know, you're with your parents' friends and you're doing lots of things in the community. And then during the week, you're trying to keep your head down and just try to be a kid and just try to fit in as best you can. Unfortunately, I had the trifecta of being incredibly unathletic, wearing glasses, and being very good at math. Um, and that made it very hard to fit in during school. But eventually, things started to smooth out. And um, all the time growing up, my dad worked in Brooklyn at a hospital. And we would go, this was back before hospitalists. So my dad would round on all his patients every weekend. And so we would go to the, to the city, we would go to Brooklyn from Long Island where we were, and we would either wait in the hospital or we would, I would either sit at the nurse's station or I would go to a park, and then we'd come and we'd page him on the hospital system, which oh was very gosh. cool for us back then. And I think for me, seeing how incredibly happy he was as a physician really piqued my interest in medicine. But I think it was actually my mom that made me really interested in thinking about atypical ways to do things. She was incredibly supportive of doing things, like trying things out. So one of the things that like, she had me try out in high school, for example, was Taekwondo. And um, eventually I made it to a black belt. And like, I would have never done this had my mom not decided to say, hey, just go for a class. So, See, you weren't unathletic. <laughs> <laughs> you still take me down. You're a black belt. <laughs> so that's a little bit of like, how it was like growing up and why I got interested. And then my science program at my public school in Long Island was so good. And I really thought science, and we were here at the Novartis Institutes for Biomedical Research, deep science was kind of the route to understanding human health. And I got super involved in research and science as a high school student, and I majored in biology in college. Wow. Boss, can you paint us a picture of your early childhood? Does it bear any resemblance to hers? I mean, many, many similarities. You know, my, my parents, uh, my father first, and my mother came to the U.S. in the late 1960s. Uh, early 70s. Uh, my father first actually Texas and then uh, ended up in Pittsburgh. Um, so I was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I, at the time there was a small Indian community, uh, but not, not necessarily a very, very big one. Uh, and actually my parents started a temple there, which ended up being, uh, with their friends, a huge, huge part of my upbringing. And most of my evenings and weekends were at the Sri Venkateshwara Temple in uh, Penn Hills, uh, Pittsburgh. 
Um, and I think that also had an impact in, in other dimensions as well. I mean, my mother was very keen on introducing us to Indian culture, Indian heritage, um, going to Indian, uh, the, the temple summer camps, uh, reading the Bhagavad Gita, reading the Mahabharata, and, and learning all of those lessons. I still think the Bhagavad Gita is one of the most important leadership texts um, one can find in any, in any um, Eastern or Western tradition. So that was, that was a big part of my, my upbringing um, there. And like Shristi, also just trying to fit in, put your head down. You're one of the, maybe a handful of uh, kids from other, of other ethnicities, non-Caucasian kids at your school. Just try to figure it out. Don't stick out. I was not a black belt. Uh, I was much more, I'm all, throughout my life, I've been much more mediocre than her. Um, and we've been together since like we were 21 years old. So a um, lot of opportunities to prove that. Um, and so that was, that was the, the way I grew up. And I think a lot of my you know, passion to impact public health actually came from my mother, again. Um, my mother was somebody who really believed in taking us to India, showing us the, the way people live, and reminding us again and again that we have such opportunities to contribute and serve, and that um, you have to serve and contribute with the opportunities you've given. Work hard, learn a lot, um, be relentlessly curious about the world. She built in me a huge curiosity, but figure out how you're going to make a difference for, for people. And I think that, that kind of stayed, stayed with me, absolutely. It's interesting, the parallel threads with both your moms and sort of the intangible ways in which they impacted you. Now, both of your paths converge at Harvard Medical School, and you preempted my question. You guys have been together since you were 21 years old. It's a story that starts right here on Route 9 in Boston and ends atop Mount Kilimanjaro. Not ends, it's cemented atop Mount Kilimanjaro. <laughs> it's clearly continuing. Can you tell us a little bit about how you guys first met? Oh, gosh. Um, so before I met Vas, I, I kind of said to myself, that is a person I definitely don't want to meet. <laughs> <laughs> I had heard that he was in a fraternity, and like, I, there was just a bunch of things I had total misconceptions on. Um, but we actually met in a stair... The first conversation we ever had was in a stairwell. At Vanderbilt Hall. Yeah. Uh, Vanderbilt the, Hall. The, the dorm the, for yeah, the medical sort of the school. the HMS students. So and will know they're that. all nodding. <laughs> <laughs> and this was... Um, we just started talking a little bit. And I think... Well, as you, Simi, I was very active in the South Asian community in college. And... Um, I learned very soon that Vest was also active in the South Asian community in college. And we brainstormed this idea in the stair stairwell to have a pan-Asian festival for the medical school in order to introduce the different cultures. To in, in the, the Mech. For in the, the Mech. In the I don't even know if it's called the Mech anymore. <laughs> They're nodding again. <laughs> no, I don't know what it's called now. But yeah. um, and uh, we decided to throw this thing together. We choreographed, as every good Indian story starts with a dandya ras. <laughs> so we, we choreographed a dandya ras together, and we went up and down Route 9 to Framingham, because back then, Framingham was sort of the mecca of all things. So we, got, we went to Home Depot, and we got dowels for the dandya, which we cut and painted. Wow. We, went, we, borrowed, we rented those costumes from Monty. Yeah. Like, we did just a ton of things, and we were just driving back and forth on Route 9. And we ate at Olive Garden. We, we ate at the a Olive lot. Garden. Pizza Hut was another place. Fine dining. We were, fine dining. To, we were <laughs> fine dining. We were, like, living the life. Um, and I, I, we talked all the time, like, all these calls these conversations back and forth. And then when anything would ever happen, I would pick up the, the landline. I don't know if you guys know what landlines are. I've, I've seen one in a movie, maybe. <laughs> so we picked up the landline and we would call each other um, and just kind of share with each other. And we just realized we were really 
Um, we just love being together. But I don't think we actually, we were, I wasn't clear that well, we were Well, to dating. be clear, the, the important, one important part she forgets is I did actually ask her out on a date, and then she said, who else is coming? And I was like, that's like a real, we were, I wanted to go to, and then, but I chose a ridiculous thing, too. I, choose, I chose to see Psycho at the Brattle Street Theater. Oh, my gosh. So we were so of, tired. I mean, the medical <laughs> students here and the people who've done medical school here will, will remember this. We were so tired. We did it. We went, and it got dark, and we, we sat down, and we both fell asleep. Yeah. Like, within two minutes of that sitting down. That was the down. first date. That we was our slept. first date. Yeah. Wow. So. American Psycho. Yeah. We're no, no, no. Psycho. No, psycho. psycho. Sorry. Uh, psycho. I don't think American Psycho was I don't even yet. think yeah. that was out yet. <laughs> so, you both meet in medical school, and it's interesting, because I'm curious about the ways in which you also impacted each other's life trajectories. You both made the fairly unconventional decision to pivot into industry after medical school rather than continuing in clinical medicine. And Voss, in your case, you initially started out at the World Health Organization. You did a short stint at McKinsey before being recruited to Novartis. Can you talk us through your decision-making process about going straight to industry? Well, I think another part of that whole story is, again, what we did together. Um, We didn't mention that after our first year of medical school, we actually went to Calcutta, India, and we worked with uh, street children and child laborers. Um, if there's a, a test ground to see if a relationship is going to work is you live in a slum in India for, for three months, which is what we, what we did on railway stations. Um, we then later would go to Tanzania and work on, um, on malaria control, HIV control. Um, we, we also did our thesis together uh, on multidrug-resistant tuberculosis in Peru. So all of this kind of built the energy to... to Think, think about how could you do something bigger in population health and, and lead broader organizations. And we were both blessed to have two amazing mentors, Paul Farmer and Jim Kim. We're still both close to, well, Paul, of course, has recently passed away, sadly. Um, but they were our thesis advisors, uh, our kind of support network to navigate the whole story. So, you know, when the opportunity came up to actually go with Jim to, uh, to the, the WHO effort on uh, antiretroviral treatment, where Jim had this audacious idea to say, how could we treat 3 million people with antiretrovirals by 2005? Um, And I had had the opportunity during a a previous summer to work on the first antiretroviral treatment program in Botswana. And so it was kind of an opportunity to dive in. And I mean, I look, I think throughout this journey, you're going to find out we didn't really have a plan. We kind of had a plan, but it was kind of like, let's try this out. But the, I think the overall spirit was how could you use leadership combined with a deep understanding of medicine and public health to have a, a bigger impact. Uh, and that's kind of what took me to take that bet and, uh, of course, a lot of counseling from Shrishti to ultimately go and go in that direction. Shrishti, you ended up joining McKinsey where you spent almost two decades. Can you speak a little bit about that decision? So decision... Um, in a similar vein, so this was a time we were in med school in 1998, so the early 2000s, I think we were seeing the incredibly um, negative impact of our inability to address infectious disease uh, at scale in many, many countries around the world, and sort of the inequity in how programs were available to populations in sub-Saharan Africa and uh, in India, and how HIV, AIDS especially, but TB, malaria, vaccine-preventable illness, They were just, it was just, the lifespans were dropping. Under-five mortality was really high. And the traditional routes to do work in this space were 
you do internal medicine, you do infectious disease as a fellowship, maybe you get lucky and you get a job at the CDC and then you go work on this. But at the same time this was happening, the world, I think, also recognized this incredible inequity in global health. And there was a tremendous amount of donor support and country support to create uh, public-private partnerships and really think about how do we support countries around the world to bring up their health outcomes. And so this was the Global Fund for AIDS, TB, Malaria, Gavi. Money was just coming together in a way. And I thought to myself, if I wait to kind of go down the traditional path, I'm kind of, it'll be, it, was, it felt too urgent, like I was going to miss it if I didn't start. And I had stumbled into the presentation so before McKinsey had supported the work in Botswana, creating the first national treatment and testing program uh, in an African country, they helped pilot a private sector program in Uganda. And they had come to campus and done a case study presenting how they had worked in Uganda with Merck Pharmaceuticals and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the government of Uganda and some payers in, in Uganda to scale up this program. And I saw how these things were coming together and I said to myself, if I do that, I can start working on this soon. Like, I can work on this now. I don't have to wait for this to happen. Um, I was incredibly uncertain. Uh, but if anyone here knows Jim Kim, Jim Kim was like, you might not be confident, but I have enough confidence for the both of us. Wow. And so he said, just, you know, you can always come back into clinical medicine, um, but we need people who have a social justice mindset, who are thinking about equity at the tables as we're doing this analysis, as we're bringing these programs together. And so that kind of cemented, I mean, there was a couple of stops along the way. I delayed graduating. I did the Kennedy School degree so that I would have more time to percolate the decision. But eventually, when I graduated med school, I transitioned to work at McKinsey. Absolutely. And when you joined McKinsey, you eventually became an expert in the global health practice, working on things like vaccines, family planning, HIV and AIDS. Can you speak to any especially impactful projects you worked on while there? Um, of course. Uh, I, when going back to your point around the tw nearly 20 years at McKinsey, I think the, there was a lot of false starts. So it took me 20 years to figure out how to do, to do, it, do it well. <laughs> so I started off and it wasn't going so smoothly. I actually spent my first two years entirely working in pharmaceuticals because I had no idea. You don't learn a lot about how drugs are developed when you go to med school, which is you know, a little bit of a gap, I think, in how we think about healthcare. Uh, but eventually I did become a, a senior expert in the global health practice. And there's one project I always look back on um, it's clearly still an issue, and, um, but something that I think is, is one of those things that really pulls together how healthcare is not just health, but it's all these other factors, was the two-year work I did on family planning and safe access to family planning around the world. And that involved thinking about, um, and what, well, why family planning is important is that it's one of the drivers for economic development in women. So being able to space children allows for economic development, allows for women to be able to make choices around how money is spent in the household, on education, on better food, on all of these things. And it's, it's a hugely transformational thing. So just having safe access to culturally appropriate family planning is, can be hugely transformational for countries. And we worked on figuring out how to get 120 million women on contraception of their choice by uh, 2020. Wow. And that was multilateral partnerships, financing, manufacturing of contraception, uh, policy changes, uh, how patient behavior, physician behavior, midwife behavior. How do you actually really think about this uh, at a global level? But um, global work is really global. And so it was, you know, I was in West Africa. I was in 
Indonesia. I was, you know, at headquarters at Diffid in the UK. It was it, Angola. Yeah, Angola. It was a lot. Um, it was a lot of travel. Wow. And it's interesting to me that you say that you got a couple of false starts because you ended up spending 20 years at McKinsey, and in the latter decade, you actually transitioned to doing diversity inclusion and global talent development work. What inspired that transition, and how did it impact the longer arc of your career? Well, maybe the answer to the why I moved into internal work on talent, um, it sort of has two answers. One is a little less inspiring and more practical, and the other is you know, more um, driven by McKinsey. As I said, global work is really global. And we had two sons at this point, and I, was, I remember being eight months pregnant running around Botswana, I remember, wow. you know, leaving the boys with us. You know, they were like one and three. I think they kind of, you know, grew up around the Nibra campus because we used to live right down the street. Um, and it was just, it was a lot on a young family to have, you know, just leaving for 10 days at a time. And so I needed, I think, something to pivot for me to kind of be more sustainable. But when the opportunity to come, came up to work on talent, I said to myself, McKinsey's only asset is talent. Yeah. Right, like is is really people. They don't make anything. They don't make. They don't manufacture drugs. They don't make T-shirts. Like they they make incredible people. And so to work on how do you retain, develop, attract incredible people to this company is actually an, something an amazing opportunity to work on. And so I worked on a range of things in the talent space. Uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion was a big one. I worked on it in Europe, Middle East, Africa, which is very different than in the U.S. So you think about a lot of different topics. Um, and then I worked on talent programs. McKinsey is an incredibly global company, but it was really hard to have it easily have people have experience in the multi-markets. So there's McKinsey offices in 60 countries, but it was, at the time I took over the program, it was really hard to move between those 60 countries and just get experience on that. I worked on alumni. Um, I worked on a lot of issues related to women and, and how we retain and develop women and I think that part came from my own experience as a working mom um, and just not having, this was pre-COVID where, you know, we, people didn't have so much insight as to what your home life was like and what you needed to balance. And there was a very high expectation that you would turn up at the office. So there was a very high expectation that you would be able to drop things on a dime and travel. Um, and so for me, it was really saying we are losing so many people at the manager level, especially women or young parents. How do we figure out how to adapt our way of work so that we can retain these people? And now as a board member, I feel like I go back to topics of talent more than I go to any other topic. Uh, it's like compensation, retention, what are our work policies? How do we do pay for performance? How do we you know, bring our human capital strategies at the companies I'm at? It is one of the things I feel like was such a gift to be able to work on. Absolutely. I appreciate you underscoring the fact that this has become a bigger part of the conversation since COVID, the competing demands of work and family that fall on families, not just in the U.S., but around the world. Voss, in your case, you were building your career at Novartis, which has been quite diverse and included many quick pivots. You led vaccines and diagnostics in the U.S., moved to Germany to lead Novartis's biopharmaceuticals division, and then moved to Basel, Switzerland, where you both live now, to lead global drug development before becoming CEO. How did you navigate all those changes? And did you ever actually envision yourself in the role of CEO? Yeah, I like to always say I'm an accidental CEO. It was never an intention to be, uh, be CEO. And every one of those moves was a, a constellation of, of factors, a lot of unexpected twists um, 
twists and turns. I would also say that the only way that was all enabled is because of, of Trishti's incredible uh, flexibility and ability to keep our family working in the right direction, despite us both having working careers. Um, yeah, but it was interesting. I mean, certainly moving to the vaccine um, was an interesting first move and one I would really highlight because vaccines at Novartis at the time was a small, non-profitable division, almost like a, like no one even knew like Novartis had a vaccines business. But for me as a public health physician and somebody who really was passionate about public health, it was like the sweet spot to come here. I actually worked on Sydney Street. For those of you who, who've lived in Cambridge a long time, my office was above the Asgard. I had like a little desk. I later went down to 75 Sydney Street. I had an office, uh, a desk in a hallway because we couldn't afford any more space. So they just gave us desks in a hallway. Um, and I was the head of drug of vaccine development at that point. Uh, but it was an incredible time for those eight years to really just work on developing vaccines for children, developing vaccines for the world. Uh, we, developed, we were producing 700 million vaccines and, and discovering new vaccines, whether it was for meningitis in children, so children in the United States now get the vaccines uh, that we develop, uh, and around the world. Also responding to a pandemic in 2009, I led the H1N1 swine flu response uh, to the pandemic. So that whole experience of vaccines was really amazing and galvanizing. But then there was this, and you probably remember, this, this crazy year that, that we had as, as, a, as a family. Uh, we were living over here on, on 120 Cherry Street, for those of you who know where the Bertucci's is, just like up the road from there. Um, and we decided, after much thought, I was, I was really convinced Novartis was committed to vaccines. Let's buy a house. We went and we bought a house in, in, in Brookline. We renovated, did all of that stuff. And as soon as we bought the house, Novartis announced they're going to sell the vaccines business. Very predictable, to right? To GSK, right? To GSK. Um, so over the next year, uh, we, we didn't know who they were going to sell it for. And I didn't actually know what my next role at Novartis would be. I, I had to help lead the process for GSK, to, uh, for all the companies to evaluate uh, whether to acquire the vaccine business. Um, and we were getting to the month, the final, it was March, towards the end of March. We didn't know what was going to happen. Did I need to go like, find a job? I started kind of interviewing here in the Kendall Square area. And then our then CEO, Joe Jimenez, called and said, look, I've got a great opportunity. You're going to go to Munich, and you're going to work in generics, in biosimilars, right? Which was definitely not in the plan in any way, shape, or form. Um, and we picked up and we went, right? Oh, well, you picked I picked up and we went. <laughs> and she, and the you kid, had to finish the school year. You had to finish the school year. So the kids and, and Trishy stayed here. I went back and forth. Finally, we, we got the kids over in June. We had a place. We had them enrolled in school. I remember we were sitting out, it was a sunny day in Munich at the apartment we found, we found there. I get another call from Joe Jimenez, and he said, look, I know we just moved you to Munich. We can get all of your stuff to Basel, but I need you to take a different job running drug development for all of Novartis. You need you to move to Basel. And so um, that was a funny day, right? And because we had to figure out how to I get love watching her reactions <laughs> as you talk about every move. So that was like the third or fourth job that year. And then we got moved to, to Basel. And then, of course, that, that was a critical move because in that year, all of those changes, I ended up running drug development, which then um, I think led to me ultimately becoming CEO. Um, but it was all serendipitous things that happened that year because people left and, and various things that happened. And we ended up having to move to four different houses in a six-month or seven-month period of time with two little kids, uh, but we figured it out. And did you ever envision yourself in the role of CEO? I, I still remember it was early 2017 uh, when our then uh, Chief Human Resources Officer 
called me up and said, look, we're starting a new process uh, to, uh, to evaluate who could be the next CEO of Novartis. We'd like you to be participating. And my first reaction was, why? Like, why would you want me? I mean, I'm, a, I'm running drug development. I'd spent four or five years uh, coming to this building every once, once a month, once every two months. Um, actually, sometimes we, before this building was complete, it was also over on the other side. So I was very confused because I'm a non-traditional uh, profile. I mean, most biopharmaceutical companies tend to choose people from the commercial side, not the R&D side of things. Um, but in the end, they did a bunch of evaluations, and whoever the people are who did evaluations thought that I would be, I would be good at this. So uh, that's, how it, that's all how it went down. It was certainly not in the plan. The meeting was in Dublin, and he was in a middle seat on Air Dublin. Um, and uh, he had presented, and then he got a call on his phone as they were about to take off. And they were like, we wanted you to know that we you know, have decided as a board that you will be the next CEO. Wow. He's in the middle seat. He calls me, and I'm on a call for work. And I'm like, "Can I? Can I call you back? I'm just on a work call. I didn't even. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't even take yeah. the call." And then he's like, uh, "I just got this." Like, and we, we, he was. So we were it. totally that's, floored. It was easy jet. I think. It was easy jet. Yeah, yeah. sitting in the middle seat. Middle that's a flight you'll never forget. <laughs> middle seat in EasyJet, and you've just been told you're going to become CEO of Novartis. That, that's one of those. Uh, and your wife put you on hold. <laughs> my, wife, my wife put me on hold. She's like, I can't talk to you right now. So that was one of those moments. One of those moments. Oh, I love that. So you were appointed CEO in 2018, and over the last five years, you've taken Novartis on quite a journey. Can you speak to your vision for the company on day one and how the company and strategy has changed over that time period? Yeah, and it's been bumpy, I have to say, because I, I, you, so many things you can't predict when you, when you become a CEO. But always the vision was, how could we do what we're best at, which is really focused on what this building's all about, um, making fundamental discoveries in science to translate into breakthrough medicines and be focused on medicines. At the time, we were a conglomerate, and our history over the past century had largely been to be a conglomerate. So we wanted to disassemble that and really, you know, really get to the core. But that was, turned out to be... Easier said than done. It took, in the end, it's still not done. I hope it, with the Sandoz spin later this year, we'll complete the journey. It's over $100 billion of transactions. But we, we spun off the Alcon business. We sold our consumer health business. We exited our Roche stake. Now we'll soon spin off Sandoz. Uh, and we'll end up being at, at this core. Um, and I think that, that is the right way for Novartis to, to really have the biggest impact we can. Because then it allows us to focus on new technologies impact human health and things like cell and gene therapies or RNA therapeutics and all the great things that, that happen here. But I, no, I would also say there's, I mean, the journey of a CEO, and there's no way to learn it until you go through it, is one of just tremendous perseverance. I mean, you, have, you have huge setbacks. Things, I mean, I think the huge success story we've had is a cultural transformation, which I'm really, really proud of. But uh, the business journey, the twists and turns, things just don't go your way. Um, and, and of course, as a CEO, your mistakes are in the spotlight, right? The media, the investors, your board, everything is under a microscope. And so to build a psychological, this is like a, I think it's, it's as much a physical test, but it's really a psychological test. I mean, can you find enough conviction on the mission of the work you're doing to be able to withstand all of those forces? And I think for many CEOs, it makes them just go into a box, right? You just close down. Like you don't want to be open. And, or you go the route to say, look, um, it's, it's a complex world. You're going to make mistakes. We're all imperfect. And take more of the humanistic route to be kind to yourself. Say, I'm going to learn. I'm going to make a lot of mistakes. But as long as we're heading in the right direction, that's okay. That's okay. Huh. 
I want to come back and spend a second on setbacks and how you both have managed and surmounted those. But I want to spend also a second on Trisha, your experience in board service, because you also have a unique vantage point with a different lens looking in at what it means to be the CEO of a company working with and answering to a board. You've spent time on the boards of the Norskin Foundation, which is an ecosystem for impact entrepreneurs, as well as Idorcia Pharmaceuticals, a huge biotech company. Can you speak to what you've learned about the state of biotech and also what you've generally learned about corporate governance, broadly speaking? Biotech, I mean, I think this is one thing we share, although we come at it from very different angles. It is incredibly hard to meet unmet needs for patients. And what I mean by that is, is a couple things. I mean, first, and, and Vest talks really eloquently about this sometimes um, and LinkedIn and other places, just unwinding the complexity of cells that you have a medicine that you can hold in your hand that is able to do something that affects the human body. So what is clinical success, right? You have to meet unmet need by having some degree of scientific or clinical success. And that itself is like this giant hurdle that you do. Then there's like the second hurdle that, you know, for very good reasons, we have uh, regulations around the world that say we, we want to know why you think this thing will work, where is the data, how do we know that this is the right thing for mass population. So you have to have a regulatory success to get something to meet an unmet need. And then lastly, you have to have people use it. Patients, physicians, payers. There has to be some sort of market success where somebody's willing to pay for it, people are willing to prescribe it, a patient's willing to put it in their body. Um, And that's a whole other layer of context and culturally specific things that need to happen. And as you add on layers and layers of these three levels of success, it is actually incredibly hard to do this. And unlike other industries, this is not a fail fast and, you know, mm. and cheaply. This is not break things and do, like, that's one thing on the biotech boards and having people who are in healthcare really understand is that it takes a lot of time to do these things. It takes a lot of money, unfortunately, to do these things. And if you're really committed to going through these levels uh, to meet an unmet need, you can get there. But, you know, it, there's a lot of drop off. Um, along the way as like that happens. And it, some of it is completely out of your control too. It can just be payers are not interested in having something that does this, whatever you've decided is, is, is interesting um, or meets an unmet need. So that I think is like the biggest, one of the steepest learning curves I've had in the biotech industry is just how incredibly hard it is to make progress um, on innovation and patient needs. And then in terms of the, the governance, I have to say, one of the things that's changed a lot since I started serving on boards three years ago is just you know, the, the back and forth. You know, why would a board do this? And I'm like, well, you know, we're actually like supposed to do this. And then, she's my counselor on this. Like, why would they do this? <laughs> and so we've had a lot of things to talk about in terms of like, well, how would you feel if we did this? And he's like, that's not managed. That's management's responsibility. So board work is incredibly hard work. I know a lot of people are really excited about it, and I think it's a great. Uh, it's, it's a great avenue to have impact, but it's incredibly hard work because you're trying to, you're not in the day-to-day. You're at a different level, but you're trying to provide steer. You're trying to see risk. You're trying to see around corners, but you don't have the vantage point. So it requires a tremendous number of soft skills to be able to navigate and sort of work on you know, how do you influence decision-making when you don't have you know, the ability to say, I'm in there all the time. You have a lot less information you have to make decisions on a lot less information than maybe you're used to. And um, it just requires a lot of you know, 
patients in care. People think, oh, it's a, it's a great job. You, you meet five times a year and that's about it. But I mean, you're talking to people constantly and just trying to understand and try to be helpful in a lot of ways in between those conversations. Uh, but it's, it is a great way to have impact, but it's, it's actually quite challenging. And it requires a lot of self-restraint sometimes. I can imagine. And to your point, and even the earlier conversation we've had about the work you've done in talent, particularly as it relates to women, women are historically underrepresented on boards. What advice do you have for women in this space who want to navigate the path to board leadership? Um, I have been uh, benefited tremendously. There's a, a handful of resources out there, which I think have been amazing. I think Him for Her is a great resource. They have a lot of free webinars on just very practical things, like how do you write your board bio? How do you get feedback on it? Um, the National Association of Corporate Directors in the U.S. has taken sort of the idea of board work and said there's a curriculum. Like, you need to know what is the legal basis for board work? Why is there a legal case against board directors? What does that look like? What does fiduciary responsibility actually mean? Uh, if you're interested in going the direction of board work, I highly recommend just getting smart on a lot of those things through a lot of those you know, resources that are available. And then I think the other couple things are... Um, let people know you're interested in board work and then find other women or find other people that are also interested in it and talk each other up, right? This is an entirely networked opportunity. And if you talk each other up and you're kind of, this is not a good fit for me, but it could be for you. And it, it elevates the, the conversation around each other's brands. And I think that could have a tremendous amount of impact. And if there are women out there who actually are on boards right now, I think one of the biggest routes having influence is through the nominations committee. So if you're about to join a board or you have some choices on boards, try to get yourself on the nominations committee because that is the route by which new members come into boards. And if you can bring your perspective and your voice into the nominations committee, I think that is, it will do service to the entire group of people who are underrepresented on boards. Absolutely. Appreciate you sharing all those resources. <laughs> now, it seems like the motif in both your careers to the point of you being able to coach each other in various aspects, even as it relates to board service, is because you have a lot of shared interests and one of the most prominent ones being global health equity. You both have spent a lot of time working in countries around the world on health policy issues, medical issues. What do you both see as sort of the key priorities in global health equity today? And I'm curious how your identities as South Asians has impacted that perspective as well. Yeah, I think I think global health has evolved a lot, and it will always continue to evolve. But I think when you go back in, you know, the for most of the last century, it was really tackling infectious disease at scale, and um, I think we've done remarkable things on that. Certainly, the vaccines industry and the ability to bring so many powerful vaccines to tackle many of the key infectious diseases has been hugely, hugely successful. Our ability, Novartis being one of the real pioneers on this front, of having highly effective anti-malarials, having antiretrovirals that can largely make HIV into a chronic disease, treat um, pregnant women peripartum to reduce maternal uh, fetal transmission. So many great interventions have slowly brought down, I think, the infectious disease burden. Still a lot to do. Um, I think Novartis does great at this. Our, our, our unit here at Nibber that uh, discovers new infectious, uh, new medicines for infectious disease is truly, truly extraordinary. But now I think the chapter turns to chronic disease and how will we bring the next wave of innovations to really tackle chronic disease? I mean, when we um, go our, with our family to see clinics in Tanzania or Rwanda uh, or my recent trips to Ghana, one thing that strikes you is that 
if things continue as they are, the burden of hypertension, obesity, diabetes, ultimately leading to the consequences they normally lead to, these healthcare systems just simply cannot handle it. I mean, it will be crushing. Uh, if you just look at little metrics like the capacity to do renal dialysis or manage strokes, I mean, it's very, very low for the levels of hypertension you have in these countries. So I think now the next chapter in global health is how do we tackle chronic disease at scale? And what I'm excited about is some of that is just getting the basics right, investment, infrastructure. But I personally think we have the power of next generation technologies, again, like what we do here. And one of the ones I'm very excited about, and uh, the Nibber folks know this well who are here in the audience, is, look, with small interfering RNAs, we can give uh, medicines to treat hypertension or hypercholesterolemia extremely infrequently. So you're no longer asking a patient in rural Tanzania or rural Ghana to go to the hospital every month to refill their prescription, sometimes four or five hours. Instead, a single injection would knock down cholesterol or hypertension dramatically. And so that's where it's really interesting to show how you know, the work we do on the cutting edge of biopharmaceutical science would ultimately have massive public health impact on chronic disease and help us hopefully leapfrog the whole challenge of compliance and, and diagnosis of chronic diseases. But this is the next challenge, and it is, it is coming like a tsunami if we don't, if we don't get ahead of it. And just to add up to that, I mean, ultimately, for us, global health equity has been about challenging the belief that some ma lives matter less. And, you know, it's seeing companies that are as committed to making sure that interventions and technologies are available to all populations globally as quickly as possible, instead of saying these are available in the U.S. or Europe or Japan, and then we'll start thinking about other markets. Like, just trying to reduce the time that things take the time it takes to get interventions to the broadest set of populations. And then to Vess's point around things like small interfering RNA, we have this ability to kind of not necessarily go stepwise through how things you know, worked in, in the U.S. healthcare system or the European healthcare system. We have this ability to leapfrog. And so how do we actually incorporate patient experience, their ability to be in, in health centers that may not be that, that, that um, close by, in order to incorporate that into how we design actual products to use and to have these interventions. So as we take this lens into our work, either my work in biotech or your work in kind of thinking about a large portfolio of products, it's really about saying we have to keep always challenge the belief that some matters, lives matter less because that's, you know, that's how we'll address equity issues. And maybe, Simi, coming back to your question on the South Asian element of this, I mean, one of the striking things is on the one hand, for instance, at Novartis, we have 10,000 people. India is our second largest center for Novartis as a company in Hyderabad. I mean, it is a huge, huge part of the success of our company. And yet the Indian pharmaceutical market and the Indian healthcare system is still very much um, a story of low-income diseases. It's, it's still very much the challenge of high rates of diseases like malaria. I mean, most of the Novartis donates the global supply of leprosy medicines. Most of that goes to India. Wow. Interestingly, you know, where you have a major global effort to tackle sickle cell disease, I didn't know this until we really got into producing the various medicines to, to give the basics for sickle cell disease, uh, hydroxyurea, antibiotics. The highest number of sickle cell patients in the world is in India. And so there's a lot of things we can do to hopefully move the needle on that front, uh, but certainly a lot to do. 
I want to double click on that because you obviously are the CEO of a company that has a presence in 140 countries. And to the point that both of you are making, healthcare is very different when you're working in diverse market contexts. What have been your key learnings and takeaways about what it means to lead globally? Um, I think, <laughs> well, one, one of the, the first things you learn early on as a CEO is you control a lot less than people think you control as a CEO. <laughs> you know, you, you can set a direction, you can set a context, you can hopefully inspire. But I mean, some of the things I, I've learned, uh, some, I mean, I think these are basic principles that leaders have to always remember. The number one job of a, of a leader is to multiply the energy of your people. And you have to have the energy to give energy. And the idea is, can through your presence, through the ideas you, you convey, can you multiply the energy of the people by making them extremely tied to the mission? Being, I mean, I think you have to ultimately answer the question, why do we do the work over and over again? And generally, that answer uh, is across cultures, right? Reimagining medicine to extend and improve patients' lives, which is our Novartis story in a single sentence, that, that motivates somebody from Australia to South Africa to Argentina to the U.S. And so you have to be able to articulate that vision, get people energized, and multiply the energy of the people. I think the second thing I've learned about leading in such a big global organization is the consistency of the message. Have simple, consistent messages. So I've learned, like, we're not going to change the words. We're just going to keep saying the same thing. Because to get through 105,000 people in 140 countries takes years. And if you start getting bored and say, you know what, maybe, you know, maybe we switch from reimagine to reignite or whatever, then <laughs> the whole company loses the plot, right? So I, I, think, I think you have to really stay consistent, simple messages consistently um, over time. Uh, and, and then, I mean, I think in the end, you have to pay a lot of attention to culture and, and the human element. I mean, we think about trying to get a humanistic culture in Novartis. In the end, Novartis is just a word, right? We're 100,000 people trying to do something good for the world. And you have to bind people together by a common set of beliefs and norms and values that hopefully carries the organization forward. I love that, and I love the piece where, for you, semantics is not really semantics. It goes a long way. Both of you, as we talked about earlier, have faced your share of setbacks in your careers. And I'm curious what you've done to be able to cope with them and surmount them and what practices you have, even on a daily basis, that have helped push you through even the toughest of times. I think a, a big one for me is, I think Beth said it earlier, it's understanding what you actually control and what you don't control. Um, and doing a lot of yoga and mindfulness. Um, I have a daily yoga practice. You just yoga twice a day. <laughs> um, I, I, it's like one of those, it's like a coping mechanism. It's a reminder of equanimity. Like you want to approach things as they are, not as they should be or as you want them to be. And when you can sort of step back and see things as they are, you really can appreciate, you know, your ability to control that. You know, you can't control the outcome. But what you can control is the energy you put in or the passion you put in for it, the curiosity you approach that with, the kindness that you approach that with. And I think that has been a big one for me over the years and really understanding, you know, when things go well or things don't go well, it's, it's really just appreciating that you don't actually control the outcome at all. Yeah, so I have a whole, whole um, spiel on this. I won't take you through all of it, but, you know, the, I really believe daily practices are super, super, super important. 
Uh, I learned from a coach uh, long ago, uh, and I continue to practice and continue to work with that coach, mindset, movement, nutrition, and recovery. Uh, mindset is the stories you tell yourself. So can you really, as Shristi said, get really outstanding at looking at your own thoughts and emotions and understanding how you can reframe, whether that's meditation, whether that's yoga, whether that's breathing practices. Um, but I, I think you can control your thoughts and you can control how you perceive the world if you can become get, get that sort of awareness. Um, nutrition clearly has a huge impact on performance, energy, movement. Clearly, exercise is one of the highest correlations with happiness, no matter which study you look at in the long run. And then recovery. I'm a big believer in sleep. I think you have to sleep seven, eight hours. People have to take their vacations. Uh, because in the end, your ability to have that energy to make the right decisions, all of those, those, those little things matter. Um, so I think that's, that's a big part of it. I think the other thing we don't talk enough about is just asking for help. Mm. I mean, I have two coaches. And Shristi, who's my lead coach. So I've got three coaches, right? Um, and even my son, Sai, he's also a coach, right? I mean, you need, you need, you need to be able to ask for help because these are, these are tough things that, that all of us have to go through. And I think when people go through those things alone, it's just so much, so much harder. And I think humans are we're social beings, we're apes. We want to actually convey, talk, and work through those emotions. And I think that's something we can really encourage people to do a lot more of. Absolutely. I, I love that. And I think what's interesting is it's clear the ways in which you both have helped each other through the course of your careers. And I'm curious, I mean, both of you have been rising and hustling for the better part of 25 years but I imagine it hasn't been easy supporting each other through moves across the world, career changes, while also building a family and supporting each other's individual aspirations. Can you speak a little bit about how you've done that, especially in a world where I think there's a bigger conversation that's about how can we do it all? <laughs> when I was in the first grade, um, my parents went to this like, parent-teacher conference. They went to school and they sat at my desk. And then the next day, I remember like going to my desk and I opened up my you know, desk, this wooden desk, and I had this note from my dad and he's like, I'm so proud at how organized you are. I, still, I think I still have it. Um, and I, honestly, like organization is one of those things that's helped us navigate. Like I'm hyper organized. We have a whiteboard in our kitchen. It feels like a team room for like McKinsey. Um, so I, I'm, I'm very hyper. It's like it, project management is like my superpower, which I think coupled with one of us's superpowers, which is being able to say, what's important and what's not important because like he can cut off half a list of things like when all of a sudden he's like trivial that's like not, that's not relevant right now it's helped us navigate a lot of this like sort of logistical complexity um and i mean we talk a lot like we have we just anytime like something comes up we just we're like we just talk it out like we you know we're like we have we have to be in two different cities and the kids have to be in another third city like what are we supposed to do how do we work this out we, we kind of do that i think the one thing i would say is None of this was pre-planned. Like, we didn't know, like, this is how we were going to navigate any of this. Like, we didn't even know the complexity our lives were going to take at the time we got together. So I wouldn't get bogged down in kind of, you know, analysis paralysis of sort of saying, okay, this is how we're going to prepare for these things. I think, um, for me, it's just been, if you make a good decision in your partner, and you can just trust that you'll be able to work it out, like, every single time something comes up. Because you're never going to prepare for every scenario. I love that. I mean, the things I would add is, look, I mean, I, I married my best friend, so that actually oh. helps, helps a lot, right, to, yeah. to actually work through all, all, of, all of these different topics. Um, I also think we had a lot of shared, 
shared values, right? I mean, that our parents and grandparents ultimately instilled in us that um, kids are paramount. So for Saya and Kabir, we drop everything, whatever it is that we're doing. Um, so that's our top, always family, top, top, top priority. Um, Shristi says, family, Novartis, Novartis. Is usually <laughs> sometimes she, she doesn't like it when it's Novartis, Novartis family sometimes. So um, she rightfully calls that out. But I think that's, that, that, that belief is, is really, really important. I think a common belief that it's about impact we're having on the world, what are the right things to do, not a materialism or, or kind of a, 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 a attachment to material things. I mean, like we, we still live in that same house that I told you, we told you about earlier in the story. Yeah. Wow. And we still like eat at the same, like Anna's Taqueria and like the, <laughs> there's no fancy restaurants. The, the furniture's the same. <laughs> Everything is exactly the same. Except the desk isn't in the hallway anymore. Exactly, the desk is not in the hallway anymore. Um, yeah, so I think staying grounded and having a belief that being grounded is ultimately the right thing to do. So I think a lot of those values are important to, to have a common understanding of, and then you can navigate all the ups and downs, twists and turns. Right? I love that. I have one last question for you both, but before I ask it, I'm gonna turn it over to our audience for an audience Q&A. So feel free to raise your hand if you have a question. We have one back there. Truly an inspirational um, speech today, so thank you so much for it. Um, I wanted to ask you, it seems like um, in the world at large, at least in the United States, there are a lot of Indian CEOs that are there. And every time I hear many of them speak, it certainly appears that uh, their grounding in the Bhagavad Gita comes up a lot and their grounding in their traditions comes up a lot. So what advice would you have for youngsters, young Indian Americans growing up? Um, how could they keep in touch with their culture and should they? as they go along. And that was one question. I'll ask a second one. Uh, I work for a nonprofit called Akal, which works in very rural, remote areas in India. Um, I'm hearing that diabetes uh, is becoming the next big thing in South Asia. I heard hypertension you're talking about. Um, so again, in my own villages, I'm seeing it. Um, I didn't know if you have suggestions on how we might uh, go about tackling that. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, the first question was, the young people. Oh, the young people. So, yeah, I, you know, I think one of the things that's interesting about this day and age with all of the technology, social media, is, of course, it's harder to sometimes make, I think, ancient thought and religion relevant. But if I, if I really were to ask myself what really helped me ground in, whether it's in leadership or ways of thinking, it's mostly ancient texts. I mean, the book's Leadership, my two favorite leadership books are the Bhagavad Gita and the Tao Te Ching, I think are the two best leadership books. And they're both basically odes to servant leadership, which is what all we talk about now at Harvard Business School, servant leadership. These books talked about it 3,000 years ago. Um, so I, I think there is value in reading these stories. I think the hard part is we just have to, as, and I need to do it better for my own sons, is, is to make it relevant for today's world. And what are you learning that's going to be very relevant for, for today's world? Because there isn't necessarily that same connection to going to a temple every, like, you know, the way I was raised. But I think it's so powerful, still the stories. The lessons are the same. It's just hard as human beings to follow them. But I don't think the lessons have shifted. So I think it's just making that relevance. And I would encourage people to, to read these books. Um, and and to, you can certainly quote that I think most of the leaders I know who are of Indian origin at the tops of these companies also are deeply grounded in, in these stories. 
I think on the on the diabetes front, this is a I mean clearly a global challenge, and there's not an easy easy solution. Though of course, be more and more therapeutics we can offer, and, and now there's a new wave coming that also has a, a, a powerful impact on on obesity. But this is still grounded fundamentally in habits, you know, the the approach to food, the abundance now of food for a species that actually as a species we were designed for scarcity and now we're surrounded by abundance and you know, fundamentally our metabolisms don't know what to do and so of course that leads to insulin resistance and all the consequences so i don't think there's an an easy solution to this i think what's clear though is early diagnosis and early intervention no matter which disease we talk about uh, hypertension diabetes lung cancer breast cancer i mean we have to just figure out how to diagnose earlier and intervene earlier, because past a certain point, it's very, very difficult. There's a question right here. here. Thank you guys for a very riveting talk. Um, This question is for either of you guys, given that both of you have different perspectives on global health and global equity. Um, As someone who's currently in med school right now, I feel like a lot of the education we get is often US-centric, focused on the sort of modalities and diagnostic and therapeutic capabilities that we have here in the U.S. And we're very lucky to have, you know, impressive biotech engines based here in the U.S. But where in places where there is disease burden, like you mentioned, sickle cell in India, and a lot of the innovation is often resource intensive or really cutting edge, like biologics or gene therapies. How do you ensure that those populations get those treatments and what do you think is the first step in sort of developing that infrastructure in areas of disease burden developing nations? I mean, one of the things I would just start with is even in the United States or even in Europe, 70% of health outcomes are structural and society or social determinant. So where you work, with the pollution, your access to food, your access to safe spaces to exercise, your jobs. So I think even in the United States, we're struggling in medical education to help um, students understand or medical professionals to understand what is the breadth of actual intervention required to achieve health outcomes in your, in your, in your local patient populations. Uh, and a lot of people are, it's a very divided discussion. A lot of people say you go to med school for four years, you do a residency, you're not there to make sure your patient has heat. That needs to be somebody else. But without that heat or without access to food, your patients are not going to get better, even if you give them the best drugs in the world. And so this is only amplified as we you know, move into to more resource-poor settings outside of the United States and outside of Europe. And I, I think we have to figure out ways that we're structurally addressing these fundamental drivers, you know, access to food, socioeconomic status, what is the GDP per capita in a country. Uh, these are the things that I think are going to elevate communities, but then instilling the right behaviors, I think, around activity, around consumption, um, are going to be really important. I know you guys have done, but Novartis has done a lot on thinking about shortening the timeline for interventions and, to be and, available. And, and the way I think, the way we think about it is, on the one hand, to your to your question, how do we reduce the costs and the barriers to getting the the most technologically advanced therapeutics? But at the same time, how do we just keep raising the base of kind of just the basics uh, that that are in place? So let, let me use sickle cell as an example. Um, when actually here at Nibber, on alongside a monoclonal antibody, we have programs looking at uh, CRISPR-based therapeutics to tackle sickle cell disease, as well as fetal hemoglobin-based 
um, technologies. And so we wanted to do something to tackle sickle cell in Africa five, six years ago, actually when, when I first started as CEO. Then when we went on the ground, we realized first that there isn't good newborn screening in place. Like the newborn screening is just non-existent despite there being millions of children with sickle cell disease on the continent. So we started with newborn screening. We got newborn screening up in Ghana. Now we've got newborn screening up across six different countries. And interestingly, nobody else was working on it. We had to sit there and just go country by country on newborn screening. Then we said, okay, very interesting. We have monoclonal antibodies and cell therapies, but what's the next step for these patients? It's access to antibiotics. We have Sandoz, the largest antibiotics producer in the world, so we started to supply antibiotics. Then the next therapy is hydroxyurea. It's not any of the fancy stuff. We actually made an agreement with a company in Italy to produce hydroxyurea at large scale, at low cost, and then we made it available to all these countries. Step by step, we're raising this, and then at the same time, we have a partnership with the Gates Foundation to figure out how can you make CRISPR-based uh, cell therapies uh, in vivo and extremely cheap? Um, I don't know, John, if you're working on that project or others, but it's, a, it's an interesting model to say, how can you take a cell therapy that normally it requires huge infrastructure, and can you actually condense that down to actually make it inside of a person? And in each one of these cases, that's what we have to do, whether it's cancer, whether it's sickle cell disease, raise the bar on the basics, while still driving down the complexity of the high end, and hopefully at some point in the next decades we meet in the middle. Back there. Thank you both so much for a very inspiring conversation. Uh, for myself and my wife, as we both raised two young kids, it's inspirational to see how, how the both of you do it. So thank you for that. Um, my question is for us particularly on how do you see the impact of the uh, Inflation Reduction Act impacting what Novartis is doing with this pipeline moving forward? And or uh, do you see changes coming to that particular act uh, that might also impact what Novartis is doing in terms of uh, medicinal development? Again, thank you both. <laughs> I was going to try to give it to Shishi, but she's not going to let me. Um, yeah, so I, I live, uh, a lot, obviously, a lot of the U.S. public policy topics. And I mean, certainly the, the Inflation Reduction Act uh, is going to have an impact on innovation as it currently stands. And that, and that largely relates to how the, the price-setting provisions in the act are, are structured. But, I mean, taking a step back and, and sort of thinking about what, what is fair and right and appropriate in a biotech ecosystem. When you go back to the Hatch-Waxman Act from the mid-1980s and you look at the broad set of data, on average, biopharmaceutical companies have had between 13 and 15 years of exclusivity on a new invention. It roughly makes sense if you think that we make a discovery, we wait a few years before we patent it, then we have 20 years and then it takes us seven years from that point in time of the patent to ultimately develop it. Then you have 13 years left for a exclusivity on your invention. Then it goes generic. So the provisions in the act where they say that after 13 years for biologics, we're going to have some sort of genericization event is really meant to, I think, curb some of the abuses that have happened in the system. And I mean, while we don't love it, it's hard to argue with the logic there. The challenges on the small molecule provisions in the act, where you reduce that down to nine years, it's just simply too short a time for us to be able to fully develop small molecules in areas of cancer or cardiovascular disease that are predominantly in the elderly. 
So what that incentive shift does, and I don't think that the, the, there was enough of a discussion or understanding of how markets work. When you put in something like that, systems like this quickly shift, right? We deprioritize products that will be within the crosshairs of those nine-year provisions, and we prioritize things that will put us in the 13-year provision, right? That's just the nature of this. So I'm hopeful that in the next five years, we can get that nine to 13 corrected. The sad part is, in the meantime, I think many good medicines will get delayed or deprioritized in the absence of having certainty on how this, this whole thing evolves. Maybe someone on the bleachers? Thank you so much for an inspiring talk. And as a Novartis employee, I'm very honored to be part of a company that really reimagines medicine. And I'm very excited to know that we're having therapeutics be more accessible to these communities. At the same time, there's also a lot of mistrust in these communities that don't understand the science or the new innovation of these technologies and platforms and modalities of these new therapeutics. So how do we bridge the new upcoming technologies to really make more accessible at the same time, make sure it's safe and effective to these communities that might not understand the exact science of this? Yeah, I mean, it's such a good question. And I think one of the things, even moving back you know, to therapeutic availability is clinical trial diversity. Um, and we really see mistrust uh, in communities when it comes to participation in clinical trials. And not a, some of that is just is mistrust, but there's actually very pragmatic aspects to, to clinical trial, the lack of diversity in clinical trials. Patient populations, uh, there's data that shows that patients are actually not in touch with a physician who's close enough to a clinical trial, and especially in underrepresented in patients of color. They're physicians. They often go to physicians of color and those physicians are not actually close enough to clinical trials to enroll their patients into clinical trials. So this, it starts a chain of events where you kind of perpetuate mistrust in certain communities because they're not part of the, the innovation of it. They're, they're not knowledgeable about, you know, why this product or why this thing or where is this going or why is this different. And that even goes back to physicians. Diversity in medical schools, I think, is going to help a lot. I think there's a lot of initiatives um, on thinking about how do we how do we ensure that uh, there, we have diversity in schools and that we actually talk about clinical trial participation with, with, with physicians, regardless of you know, who, what they're graduating with or what they're doing, and then trying to increase the amount of community involvement in trial design and trial participation, I think will start to, to, to start the level of, of increasing some of the trust so that therapeutics can be available. But maybe you want to add to that. Yeah, I would just build it uh, on what Trishti said and, and add from a bigger picture kind of uh, narrative of what we're seeing in the loss of trust in, in science and how it's so important that we tackle that. I mean, one of my favorite books is uh, a book called Enlightenment Now by Steven Pinker, which really talks about how over centuries we've dramatically improved human life on this planet on almost every dimension based on science and science-based innovations across the full range of, of human life. And actually, this moment in time is the best moment in time to ever be alive in the history of the species. But when you read the papers or you hear our politicians, you wouldn't believe that, right? You have this whole, you know, um, kind of bizarro world that's been created, that the world is ending and all these things. And, and of course, there's huge challenges, but the only way we're going to overcome them is by trust in science and trust in, in knowledge creation and curiosity. And so I think all of us have to just keep trying to fight for, hopefully, the voice of scientists, the voice of science, 
Um, I often sit in meetings where I just cannot believe the things that senior politicians say about vaccines. I mean, vaccines are simply the greatest public health intervention that humanity has ever created, bar none. Maybe one of the greatest inventions we've ever created. And yet they're talked about like there's some sort of evil conspiracy. And, and so we need, to, we need to tackle this. I don't have a magic solution, but I think we just have to keep, as all of us in whatever communities we're in, keep you know, building more trust in science and in scientists. I think that's a great place to end our audience Q&A. And as I said, I have one last question for you guys. You both started a momentous moment in your journeys, a stone's throw away from here at Vanderbilt Hall. And looking back at that younger version of yourselves, I'm curious. I mean, in some ways, you guys are every Indian parent's dream. You're Harvard-educated physicians. (laughs) And in other ways, you've charted completely unconventional paths in health and education and beyond. Looking back at your younger selves, looking at your son, Sai, who's here today, what advice would you give to that version of yourselves? I think one big theme for me um, is careers tend to make sense in retrospect. They don't necessarily make sense forward-looking, and so don't beat yourself up too much if you can't sort of connect the dots in the moment. They wind up connecting somehow um, in some way, so... That would, be, that would be my small I piece of that. advice. Yeah, I, I would look back, and it's still the same advice Sai keeps giving me, is to have more fun on this whole journey, <laughs> right? And, and it's, it's easy to get so caught up in, in you know, what you're going to do next and the roles and the titles and, the, and all of the things. And in the end, right, it's this, this moment that matters, and the more you can live in that moment and be happy in that moment, the more fulfilled you'll be. It's really hard to do that, really, really hard to do that. Uh, but Sai always calls me out on it, which I'm always grateful for. And, uh, but that would be the advice. You know, have a lot more fun on the journey, for sure. It sounds like you guys both have a lead coach in the house. Yes, <laughs> we do. We do. Uh, honestly, I think I could dedicate an hour to each of you. Thank you both so much for taking the time to share your wisdom and insights. Can we give them a round of applause? Now, before we wrap up for the evening, there are a couple of people who I'd like to thank who were instrumental in making today possible, Um, starting with the Novartis team uh, who've hosted us and put on this beautiful event, Uh, Vinny, who's been there walking alongside me, helping make this event happen and come to life, Uh, to Kathleen, Patrick, Conrad, Chris, um, Iha, John, Daniel, thank you all so much. Um, this literally event would not have happened without all of you, and I'm so grateful to have met you through this process. And I think it speaks to the talent you guys are cultivating here. Um, to all the friends, family who've come from afar, aside, uh, so awesome to be joined by your son, and I know we're missing Kabir. Um, My dad also flew in for this event, which is really exciting, but to all the familiar faces and new ones, we're so happy to have you here. Um, And last but certainly not least, to Shushti and Voss for giving us the privilege to share your story and for the enthusiasm you've shown for South Asian Trailblazers. Um, Your journeys individually and together are incredible and so grateful to have the opportunity to share it with our community. Thank Thank you you for having us. Thank Thank you you for inviting us. Amazing what you're doing. 
to our audience, thank you all for coming. Um, I hope that if tonight's conversation resonated with you, if our mission struck a chord with you, you'll continue to engage with us. Um, our mission is really all about giving generations of South Asians a line of sight to leaders who look like us so that their journeys can inform and inspire our own. Um, this conversation will be live on all our feeds on Apple, Spotify, and if you ever want to connect, uh, you can find us at South Asian Trailblazers across socials or on our website. Um, and I'm going to ask you all to stay seated so we can take one quick group photo. Okay. Uh, but the parting thing I will say also is on your way out, we do have a surprise for you all, and that is gift bags, which include a gift from us at South Asian Trailblazers, as well as from two South Asian female-founded brands, uh, Scrumptious Wicks, a hand-poured candle company, as well as Prana Kitchens, which is creating Ayurvedic-inspired spices. So be sure to grab one on your way out. Thank you all for coming, and stay seated for just a second. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. If you want to get new episodes straight to your inbox, subscribe to our newsletter at SouthAsianTrailBlazers.com and follow us at South Asian Trailblazers on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn.